Would you please turn with me to John chapter 1? And as you do, we're going to dismiss our children to Children's Church. If you have little kids, uh, pre-K through kindergarten, who can go with Miss Leanne, our children's director, and some of the volunteers in the back. Well, I always appreciate, but don't always thank our musicians and singers. Thank you for singing today. Uh, this is one of those days where it seems like there are little lyrics and lines in all of the songs that really uh, impacted me in a very profound way today. And that's the Holy Spirit, and we're going to talk about Him today, so it's fitting that God would do that. Thank you. Thank you for being being used by God in that way to all of our musicians and singers. It means the world to me and to our whole church. And anyway, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. We're, uh, if you're brand new today, and some of you are, some of you have been here a few times, or some of you have been here for as long as I've been alive. Uh, <laughs> we are going through the book of John. John is uh, one of my favorite Gospels. I love John. It's so beautiful. Uh, I noted last week, and I've noted a few times during this series, if you look on the cover of your bulletin this morning, you'll see an artistic depiction of the Apostle John. And the Apostle John is depicted uh, with an eagle. Now, why would that be? Those of you who were here last week know. The reason is that the eagle, according to the legend, is a bird that could fly directly into the sun without being blinded. And similarly, the Apostle John enables us to look directly into the face of the Son of God, S-O-N, Son, without being blinded, with being warmed and encouraged and strengthened by the beauty of His holiness and grace. And so that's why we're studying John. It's a great story, the greatest story ever told, the story of Jesus. And we pick up that story in John chapter 1, starting in verse 29. This is God's Word. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was or existed before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's go to God in prayer. O Lord our God, we thank you for your scriptures. We ask that you would speak to us now by the power of your Holy Spirit. For we, your servants, are listening. Our desire this morning, Lord God, is to hold on to you until you bless us. Do that, we ask, through Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. 
This week, I came across a painting by a Spanish artist named Francisco de Zurbaran. It's one of the most amazing paintings I've ever seen. Zurbaran uh, specializes in painting realistic paintings, often depicting scenes from the scriptures, uh, scenes from the lives of, of Jesus and the Virgin Mary, apostles like Peter and his brother Andrew, saints like the great saint, uh, St. Francis of Assisi and St. Thomas Aquinas. Active from 1627 to 1660, his works can be found in museums across Europe and the United States. Paris, Seville, Madrid, Chicago, Cleveland, and San Diego. Now, I am not an art critic, but in my humble opinion, none of his paintings can compare to this work titled simply Agnus Dei the Lamb of God. In this painting, we see a lamb, legs bound, lying on what appears to be an altar or perhaps the horizontal crossbeam of the cross, a, a faint halo visible above his head. His bright white wool represents the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ, the light of the world. While the darkness is evocative of our sin, the darkness of death. In the painting, we see a series of contrasts, not only between light and darkness, but between weakness and strength, justice and mercy, guilt and grace, sorrow and hope. It is in these contrasts, these seemingly irreconcilable opposites, that we begin to see the profound beauty of the gospel. Verse 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Last week in verses 19 through 28, we focused our attention on John the Baptist, who was a messenger of hope. Through his denials and affirmations, we answered the question, who are you? And we were reminded that while we are not Jesus, that while we are not the all-knowing prophets, while we are not all-powerful miracle workers like Elijah, we are, in fact, heralds of the King. We are voices crying out in the darkness, make straight a pathway for our God. Having looked at John, the messenger of hope, this week we turn our attention to verses 29 through 34, where we will focus on Jesus and the message of hope. Who was Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? Was he a prophet like his cousin John the Baptist? Was he a priest like his uncle, Uncle Zechariah? Was he a king like his many times great great grandfather, King David, a man after God's own heart? Did he come as the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah to conquer his enemies? Or did he come 
as the silent Lamb of God who was conquered by his enemies for his enemies. This morning, as we come to one of the most important statements about Jesus in the entire Bible, I want us to ask two questions, two big questions that will help frame our understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. The first big question is this, what did Jesus come to take? What did Jesus come to take? And second, related to it, what did Jesus come to give? What did Jesus come to take? And what did Jesus come to give? In these six short verses, we will see that Jesus came to take away the sin of the world through his vicarious, voluntary, and victorious death on the cross. But we'll also see that Jesus came to give us the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of power, understanding, and joy. So that's our outline this morning. Two big questions, six big answers, 30 big minutes. We'll see. I would remind you of what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. Are you ready? All right, let's take a closer look. We begin with our first big question, which is this. What did Jesus come to take? Well, according to John the Baptist, who was, again, Jesus' natural cousin, earthly cousin, Jesus came to take away the sin of the world. Verse 29, the next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, listen to this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was or he existed before me. Now, in order for us to understand what John the Baptist is saying here, we have to put ourselves in the sandals of an Old Testament Israelites. Okay? So put on your redemptive historical crocs for just a minute because we're going for a walk all the way back to the book of Genesis and Exodus. Now, in the book of Genesis, we read a somewhat strange story about a man named Abraham and his son Isaac. Here's what happened. God called Abraham, who was then known as Abram, to leave his homeland, Ur of the Chaldees, to go to a new land, a promised land, where God would use him to become the father of a great nation. God would someday bless Abraham and his wife Sarah with many, many children, many, many tribes, so that God would rule over them in the land of Canaan, then known as the land of Israel, the nation of Israel. Okay, but there was a problem. In order for one man to become a mighty nation, that one man would have to have lots and lots of children. 
But that seemed very unlikely to Abraham and his wife Sarah because both of them were very, very old. They were like George Burns old. They were like, I can't find my car keys old. They were like, my pills come to me in a box that's shaped like a calendar old. Okay? They had no children and they had no prospect of children. So what would God do? God, being God, intervened. God gave Abraham and Sarah a son, a son named Isaac. Isaac was destined to fulfill all the promises that God had made to Abraham. And so Abraham was more than a little surprised, and I'm sure not a little confused, when God said, I want you to sacrifice your son. I want you to take him up on the mountain, Mount Moriah. I want you to plunge a dagger into his heart. Abraham, Genesis 22, verse 2, God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Abraham, the great man of faith, believed God. And he obeyed God, but he didn't do it blindly. He knew that God must be, t- must be testing him in some way, and he believed that God would spare his one and only son by providing a substitute for Isaac. Which is exactly what happened. Abraham raised his knife to kill his son, and God said, Stop. Stop. Abraham looked over into a thicket of brambles where he saw a ram. God provided a substitute. The ram would die so that Isaac, the son of promise, might live. Now, looking at that Old Testament story through the lens of the New Testament, which is, by the way, how we should look at every Old Testament story, we see that God is preparing us for the message of the gospel. God was preparing us for the message of grace. God was preparing us for a message of hope. Your son won't die for me, Abraham. Someday... My son will die for you. Now fast forward to the story of Moses and the Exodus, Old Testament, season 2. God's people are now in Egypt, Pharaoh is oppressing them, and God says through Moses, who was God's spokesman, and Aaron, who was God's spokesman's spokesman, Pharaoh, I want you to let my people go so that they might worship me. Pharaoh said, I don't think so. And so God sent a series of plagues, ten of them. Each time Pharaoh relented, each time he hardened his heart and refused to let God's people go until God said, for my final plague, I am going to kill every firstborn son in the land of Egypt. Now, some of you middle children are probably thinking, sounds good to me, but (laughs) it was actually a disaster for the nation of Egypt. In ancient cultures, 
the whole future of the family was riding on the shoulders of the firstborn son. Once the father died, it was the job of the firstborn son to take care of his mother, who's now been widowed, his own wife, his own children, his brothers, his sisters, his nieces, and his nephews. He would run the family farm. If need be, he would fight the family's battles. No firstborn son, no future for the family. No future for the family, no future for the nation. Do you see why this is such a big deal? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, said there's a way to avoid this. If you kill a lamb, a spotless lamb, and place the blood around the doorposts of your house. The angel of death will not kill your firstborn son. The lamb will be your substitute. The lamb will die in your place. The lamb will die for your sins. The lamb will be your salvation. Now, do you hear what John the Baptist is saying? This is the shot heard round the world. He sees Jesus walking up to the water where he's baptizing, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, the story about Abraham and Isaac, and the story about the Passover, and all the feasts, and all the sacrifice, sacrificial system. It was never about rams, and it was never about lambs. It was about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just Israel, not just Abraham's family, the sin of the world. Jesus was the one the prophet Isaiah was predicting when he wrote in Isaiah 53, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. His death was vicarious in the sense that he died in our place. He died as our representative. He died as our substitute. In other words, he died so that we might live. The Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the Lamb of God, the iniquity of us all. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. 
But there's more. His death was not only vicarious in our place, his death was voluntary in the sense that Jesus didn't go to the cross kicking and screaming. He didn't go to the cross as the bull of God, snorting and and crying out. Not at all. He did not resist the people who were killing him. He died just like the prophet Isaiah said that he would die, like a lamb before his shearers. He was silent. Do you see how much Jesus loves you? Do you see that no one forced Jesus to do this? He went for the joy that was set before him. He went to redeem you from your slavery to sin. To redeem me from my slavery of sin. That's how much he loves us. He died in our place, voluntarily. And because he died both vicariously and voluntary, he also died victoriously. Listen to how these three themes are woven together in John chapter 10. Here's what Jesus said. He said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So what does Jesus mean when he says, I have authority to lay down my life? That seems to make sense. But what does it mean that he says he has the authority to take it up again? He's talking about the resurrection. He's saying my death is not only vicarious, not only voluntary, my death is victorious. Through his death, Jesus achieved victory over death. Through his death, we have received the gift of everlasting life. Through through Jesus' death, he achieved victory over sin. We are no longer slaves to the sins that used to control us. We can grow. We can change. We are no longer slaves to fear or uncertainty. We are children of the living God. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus was victorious over all the powers of hell, over Satan and his demons. If you are in Christ, if you are united to him through faith in his death and resurrection, Satan cannot touch you anymore. As Christians, we are not afraid of the darkness because we are sons and daughters of the light. And all of the devil's schemes, and all of his tricks, and all of his traps, and all the barriers that he will try to put between you and the living God have all been torn away, have all been cast aside, because Jesus is victorious over Satan himself. In fact, the whole book of Revelation could be described in one short phrase, All the imagery and all the things we see in that book. We could describe it like this. The triumph of the Lamb. Revelation 5, 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures. And among the elders, 
I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What did Jesus, the Lamb of God, come to take away? He came to take away the sin of the world. He came to take away everything that is destructive, everything that is divisive, everything that is deceptive. He came to take away everything that separates us from the love of God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Second big question. If that's what Jesus came to take away, what did Jesus come to give? Jesus came to give us the gift and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Verse 32, And John the Baptist bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, takes the grace of God and he applies it to our hearts, uniting us with Jesus and giving us power, understanding, and joy. Now, I could probably preach a whole sermon series on those three themes, so we'll walk through these things fairly quickly, starting with power. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of power. Now, when we say that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of power, we don't mean to say that the Holy Spirit gives us, each and every one of us, supernatural, physical strength. Now, that does happen from time to time in the Bible. The person Samson comes to mind. But normally, that is the exception and not the rule. When I was a little kid, maybe eight or nine years old, I used to watch a show on TBN. Trinity Broadcast Network, uh, otherwise known as TBHN, the Big Hair Network. <laughs> and the show that I loved the most on TBN was the Power Team Show. Any of you watch the Power Team Show other than me and Pastor David? Maybe that's why we're pastors, because of the Power Team. Well, the Power Team was a bunch of big, muscular guys who loved Jesus, and they would prove their love for Jesus by smashing giant blocks of ice with their heads. 
And they would take phone books and they would rip them apart with their bare hands. And they had steel bars that they could bend by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was awesome. Now, sadly, that is not the kind of power that God gives us when we are baptized by the Holy Spirit. So what kind of power does he give us? Well, because we've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, and remember this, if you are a believer, if you are trusting in Christ for salvation, that's you. You have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. It's not some like Green Beret version of Christianity where there's a couple guys who are baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's everybody. If you are trusting in Christ, you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit and with the Holy Spirit. And as such, we now have the power to live lives that honor God. In Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul tells us about the fruit of the Spirit, which are different character qualities that begin to grow in us and develop in us as we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. How do we get the power to speak the truth in love? The Holy Spirit. Where do we get the power to forgive people who've sinned against us? The Holy Spirit. Where do we get the power to admit that we are sinners who need need God's grace? The Holy Spirit. Because we have the Holy Spirit... We have the power to change. And believe it or not, that's actually harder than tearing phone books in half with our own bare hands. If you have the Holy Spirit, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then the power of God is coursing through your veins. That means you can do remarkable, amazing acts of selfless, sacrificial service empowered by God for the glory of God. You can do all things through Jesus who gives you strength. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we have the spirit of understanding. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we read this. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The Apostle Paul goes on to tell his young friend Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Holy Spirit enables us to walk with God because through the Spirit we understand who God is and what He's saying to us. Through the Spirit, we have a Bible which is living and active because it's been breathed out by the Spirit of God. What what does the, the Christian life of gratitude look like? Well, it looks like obedience to God's law. 
It looks like loving our neighbors. It looks like generosity and compassion and mercy. It looks like a, a life of prayer. It looks like a life of faith. And we know this. We have that understanding because we have the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't have all the answers to every question. Believe me, I don't. And we won't on this side of heaven. But we do have absolute clarity on the most important questions. Questions about guilt. Questions about grace. Questions about gratitude. Because we have the spirit of understanding. Last thing, finally, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of joy. Joy. John the Baptist experienced the joy of the Spirit before he was even born. We read in Luke chapter 1, And when Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, heard the greeting of Mary, Jesus' mother, the baby, John the Baptist, leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. In the book of Acts, Acts 13, we're told, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, in saying that, I acknowledge that the Christian life is hard sometimes. It is. It's not an easy life. If you became a Christian thinking that this would be easy, well, I hate to break it to you. Your life is probably going to get a lot harder very soon. It's not easy. There are ups and downs, there are ebbs and flows, people get sick, people lose their jobs. We are not immune to suffering. In fact, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And yet, because of the Holy Spirit, there is an undercurrent of joy that saturates our lives. Because you know that God loves you. And you know that you're not alone. And you know that you can change. And you know that there are answers in the book. And you know you have a church family. And you know that you have a future and a hope. And you know that your life matters. And you know that you will live forever with Jesus. That's what Jesus came to give he came to give us the gift and gifts of the Holy Spirit, who's the spirit of power and understanding and joy. My prayer for you today and tomorrow and, and every day is that you will behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and gives us the gift of of the Holy Spirit. Let's go to him now in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We thank you for the gifts that we have through him, through your Spirit. 
I pray, Lord God, that we would be changed as we see you more clearly. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the embodied message of hope. Apart from you, Lord, we have no hope. But through you, we have every hope and everything fulfilled. Hear our prayer, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.